you would take God's word and turn to Mark chapter number 8 this morning, Mark chapter number 8. That's where we'll take our reading from. Let me just say this again, welcome to you those who are visiting with us. We praise God for the opportunity to, to minister to your hearts and um, we welcome you. Uh, you may look around and notice there's a lot of children in the, in the sanctuary. Um, that's by design. We thank God for it. Um, our mothers and fathers committed to raising their children up on the pews. So, you know, we didn't stop the nursery because we had a pandemic. We were prepared for this beforehand. Um, it, it presents its difficulties, though. Um, I don't want you to feel out of place, but um, know that there's a uh, nursery back there if you need it. Um, oftentimes, some of our families, my wife included, spends a lot of time back there. Um, but there should be a speaker in there. You can uh, worship God, uh, training your little ones up in the nursery if needed. Um, anything there that you need. There's also a little... Um, colored uh, bags over here with various things in it for the children, um, activities, things like that to, to teach them and uh, try to keep them, uh, train them throughout the service to listen and to sit well and, and things like that. But if you need to take them out for whatever reason, feel free to do that. And if you don't don't know exactly where that's at, feel free. My wife's on the back pew back there to whisper in her ear and she'd love to, to sit with you or um, instruct you or, or help you with anything possible. And most anybody else here would as well. Um, as we try to worship the Lord. So um, we thank God for this, this opportunity. And again, if you need anything, feel free to, feel free to ask during, during this. If you would, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. We're going to take our reading up in the book of Mark, chapter number 8 and verse number 22. Uh, Mark by the inspiration of Spirit. And we believe that uh, under the probably the tutelage and instruction of the Apostle Peter. Uh, he writes these words. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him. This is speaking of Jesus. And begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. And then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor uh, tell anyone in the town. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again just for the privilege it is to gather. Father, we rejoice in, in the gathering of your people. And even more than that, Father, we, we rejoice in your word. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is um, to have the word of God before our eyes. Lord, we recognize that um, much of the world, possibly even half of it today, and doesn't have the Word of God in, uh, before them. Got no translation um, in their language, Father. No um, accessibility um, to the Word of God. Father, we remember uh, just centuries ago, we're told of a, an age of darkness, Father, where the Word of God was veiled um, to most of the world. And we're so thankful that in, in darkness, light shined forth, Father, and through your providential and supernatural care, um, you used men of old and uh, men of renown, Father, men of virtue, men of faith, um, to uphold the Word of God and translate it in, in the common tongue. 
So now that we as common men can have the Word of God before us to read it. Um, so we're thankful for that, Lord. We're thankful for the privilege it is to have multiple Bibles in probably each of our homes, Father. And we often have to repent of the indifference and the apathy that goes along with that. Father, a commodity um, so accessible and a commodity and a blessing um, so neglected. Father, help us not to neglect it this morning. Um, help us to um, spend just a few moments to stay our minds and hearts on the things of God. Um, Father, to just give this uh, few moments, this hour, um, to you, that you might seek, or that we might seek your face. Father, would it, when we say that, um, Father, it just, and we ask for your blessing, um, Father, we don't, um, we don't in any way mean that uh, we just hope that we'll sit on the pew and that you'll just bask, uh, we'll bask in your glory as you pour it out upon us. Um, but Father, that there's a responsibility of man, of us, to pursue you in that word. So Father, the text that we just read and the sermon that will be preached, Father, I pray that each of us, well, we've borne in us a desire to seek after you in the text and that, Lord, you will uh, meet us there. God, meet us and bless us in any way that you so desire. That often comes in the form of sweetness with communion, Lord, and sometimes that comes in the harsh, stern rebuke of chastisement. Either way, Father, we recognize that it's a, an expression of love as a father to his child who on many days enjoys just the sweetness of communion with his little ones. Um, but also, Father, um, the, um, the benefit of sometimes of chastisement and how that draws us closer to you. So, God, we welcome you this morning in whatever way that you desire. We just pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would soften our hearts, Father, to receive God's word and whatever it may be. Uh, for each of us, may we receive it with joy. So, Lord, we give this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. And for those of you that have been visiting with us, we have just taken the book of Mark. Just bring you up to speed a little bit. We've taken the book of Mark as a whole. Um, we began in Mark chapter number 1 and verse number 1 several months ago with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. And Mark, I think through the inspiration of the Spirit of God and I think through the instruction and tutelage of the Apostle Peter, I believe that that's the apostolic authority behind this, um, behind this gospel. Uh, Mark desires for us to know the gospel. Um, and not just the gospel of Mark, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his whole aim. John tells us that that's his aim as well. In John 21 and 22, that the reason that he recorded the things that he did and the reason that he didn't record the things that he didn't were for a particular reason. And that reason was is that you may know that he is the Son of God and that you may believe on his name and have eternal life. Um, Paul tells us, uh, the scriptures teach us that in him is eternal life and eternal life is to know him. That's what John tells us in John 17. And that's our goal as well. As we trek through the book of Mark, the last thing that I want you to know and to be is a smarter Christian. Uh, I don't want you to walk away more intellectual. I don't want you to walk away uh, more apologetic in the sense that you can defend the faith a little bit better. Uh, my prayer is that um, the original intent of this uh, gospel and these passages of Scripture and the life of Jesus Christ would be born in your hearts. And that, that is that you would know Him 
and that you would love him and that you would make him known. And, um, and I pray that that's what God is accomplishing in your, your hearts. We come to this portion of Scripture in verse number 22, um, just in consecutive order. We finished with uh, verse 21 last week, and we pick up in 22, where he says, Then he came to Bethsaida, speaking of Christ, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. It's, imp- it's important to remember, once again, that the gospel writers don't just pack the stories together for the sake of packing the stories together. As I said just a moment ago, um, John, Mark, Matthew, um, and Luke, uh, don't just throw accounts together for the sake of throwing accounts together. I think sometimes we read into it like that. We think that everything is just kind of disconnected and it's just an exhaustive history, a narrative, just a historical account, and they're just kind of recording what it is that um, um, they remember about our Lord. Um, But I think it's more than that. You know, in studying through the book of Mark, I think it's definitely more than that. I think that there's an intention. I think that there are patterns. I think that there are things included and things not included for a particular reason. Um, I think here, I want to remind you, as I reminded you a couple of weeks ago, um, that I believe that there's a pattern here. That not only in this account will you learn spiritual truths, but you'll learn spiritual truths when you take Mark as a whole. You'll learn a spiritual truth as you take smaller uh, portions as a whole. And what you see in this portion of Scripture is a pattern. Um, a pattern to show us a spiritual truth um, that, that, that God would uh, illustrate for us and, and desire for us to know. Uh, let me give you that pattern. For example, in Mark chapter 6, you don't need to turn there, in 31 through 30, 44, you probably remember that. And if you weren't here for that teaching, you know the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Right? Jesus feeds a, a primarily Jewish multitude. And what you read in Mark chapter 8, just a few accounts later, is that Jesus also feeds 4,000, but it's a Gentile multitude. What you read following Mark chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000, the initial, is that the disciples cross the sea, Jesus walks on water, meets them in the midst of it, rebukes the wind, and then he looks and reprimands the disciples for their lack of faith. What does he do after that? You find just a a little while later, um, he heals a deaf and a mute man. After, in that previous account, as he reprimands his disciples, what does, he, what does he look at the disciples and say? Do you not hear? Do you not see? What does Jesus do almost immediately after? He heals a man who cannot hear. Um, you go to Mark chapter 8, and you see the feeding of the 4,000, who is primarily Gentile audience from the best that we can tell. What happens after that? The disciples get in a boat with Jesus. They're out on the sea. And what does Jesus do? He has a conversation with them. And what do they do? Um, or what is the implications of that? They, again, still don't understand. So what does Jesus do? He looks at them in the previous passage and He says these words in verse 17. Why do you reason because you, don't, because you don't have bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? Remember what? The feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000. In Mark chapter 7, that's the exact same conversation that he has. He says, do you not remember out on the sea, ye of little faith? Do you not remember what I just did? The feeding of the 5,000. And then in Mark chapter 8, what does Jesus do? He sovereignly, of his own accord, heals a blind man. See, do you see the pattern? Feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is teaching to the Jews that He is sufficient to meet and to provide and sustain um, His children in the wilderness. They go out. The disciples don't understand. Don't you have ears to hear? Um, No, Lord, we don't. Uh, We need instructions. What does Jesus do? Heals a deaf man. 
Boom, feeding of the 4,000, primarily Gentile audience. Why? Because not only is God the God of the Jews, but he's the God of the Gentiles. He reaches the entirety of the nations. Not only is he sufficient to sustain and provide as the bread of life for those for his own children, the Jews, in the wilderness, but he can also do that for the Gentile. He's sufficient to meet every need according to his riches in glory. The disciples, do you understand that? No. Uh, you, do you have ears to hear, eyes to see? No. So what does God do? He sovereignly opens the eyes of a blind man, thus teaching them uh, a little bit about his Jesus' theology. And Mark, I'm teaching us a little bit about his theology, that his disciples are deaf and can't hear the revelation of Christ. So Jesus, it is incumbent and necessitate, uh, incumbent upon Christ to open the ears and the eyes of these men. Why? So that they can see and so that they can hear. And this is the text that we read in verse number 22. He comes to Bethsaida, and they brought him a blind man. They brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. What do we see? We see Jesus entering into a new place. Um, he's now, uh, it, it seems like at this point, um, there's a division within the book of Mark, and now um, Jesus is moving away from the, the, the multitudes and most of his miracles, and he's setting his face on Jerusalem. He's up in the northern part of Israel. Um, he's kind of made his way around Gentile territory. He's coming up around the Sea of Galilee. This is probably the last year he's entering, the last year of his ministry. For the last two years, he's been walking around, ministering to the people, um, healing the multitudes, um, just, just teaching the people, showing them that he's, um, he's the uh, fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the one that controls the wind. He's the one that controls the waves. He's the one that has power over um, humanity. He's the one that has power over disease. He's the one that can heal um, the lame. He's the one that can make them walk. He's the one that can heal the deaf. He's the one that um, can loose the bonds of um, satanic, demonic possession. He's the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. Um, it seems like that ministry is about to wane, and he's going to turn from them and turn to the disciples. That doesn't mean that miracles aren't going to be seen at this point, but the last half of the book of Mark is really going to reveal Christ as the suffering servant. And that's really where you, get to, you begin to see, but not before um, he opens the eyes of the blind. Because without the grace of God to open your eyes, open your heart, and open your ears, um, you won't see it. The disciples didn't see it, and, and you won't either. Um, so what we read is we read of uh, something, uh, a similar episode that we read of all throughout the book of Mark and throughout the Gospels. Jesus, um, as he's been ministering, no doubt, um, people are hearing about him. They're hearing uh, the, the hustle and bustle. Um, we hear of this man who's able to do things that no other man is able to do. Um, the, the, deaf walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, the, the lame walk. Um, so many people just got the idea, let's take, we know of a blind man, let's take him there. And that's exactly what you see in this portion of Scripture. Then he came to Bethsaida. And they brought a blind man to him. Again, all throughout the book of Mark, we see that. We see um, people bringing needy people to Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 32. Um, you see in the, the Syrophoenician woman, you see just a couple chapters ago with the deaf man, um, what happens? We find that there are people um, that can't or won't come to Christ on their own. Um, so there's a necessity laid upon their friends or family um, to, to lay them before Christ. Who? Um, this time a blind man. Up to this point in the, market, in the Gospel of Mark, we've not actually met a blind man. 
Um, again, this is a, this is well, this is, there's a pattern here, right? Um, it's not just willy nilly. He's not just healing anyone and everyone. Although he does that, the book of Mark is calculated to show us that he meets every need. That he heals not only the lame, but the demon possessed, the blind, as well as the deaf, um, and for a particular reason. And I think we all understand and know what blindness is and what blindness was. Um, it's one of the great curses of the Middle East, and one of the great curses even today, more so in the Middle East. It was, um, it was not uncommon in the Middle East to meet a great deal of people with, this, um, with a lack of sight, um, caused partly by infections, partly by the glare of the sun. Um, there wasn't modern medicine. Um, it was greatly aggravated by the fact that people knew nothing or little of hygiene or of cleanliness, especially among uh, pagan um, and third world countries. Um, it was common to see a person with a matter... It wasn't uncommon to see a person with a matter of... Uh, encrusted eyes on which even flies persistently settled. And I know that that's not the most pleasurable um, of images, but that was the image of the day. And that was often why they were considered outcasts. Uh, because naturally they carried an infection so far and so wide that blindness was the curse. Blindness was um, the scourge. Blindness was the um, impediment that, that would uh, culminate. So these people would be cast aside in society. These would be men, women that would never work. They would have to be cared for. They would be um, in the same camp as the deaf. They would be in the same camp as the lame. They would be in the same camp as the um, those that wouldn't work and those that were leprous and a number of other things. So they were the outcasts. Um, they were the outcasts. And this is probably a, a point of application. Um, that I need to make later, but I'll make it now. Does it ever strike you that that's the only people that Jesus comes to? And those are really the only people that ever come to Jesus. He never goes to a man and says, "Hey, <laughs> you know, he's kind of he's got it all together, and it's just this one area." Um, and he says, "You know, you're doing well, but I can help you do better." Um, he doesn't come to men who kind of have it together, who are semi, kind of leading their homes and are kind of doing this and doing that, and he helps them pull themselves up by their bootstraps and help them walk on. No, um, what you find all throughout the Gospels and what you find in life and what you find in true Christianity is that Jesus Christ doesn't come to make your life better. Jesus Christ comes to give you new life. Um, all he finds is all throughout the Gospels are men that are desperate. And what people are bringing are men that are desperate, men that are outcast, men and women that, 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 that cannot um, su- succeed in life. They don't have life at all. Life is stripped away from them. Why? Because of some malady, some disease, and therefore they're cast outside of society. This is symbolic and metaphorical of the, of the spiritual nature of all mankind. Jesus Christ doesn't come into the life and the gospel is not a gospel of socialism or of health, wealth, and prosperity. And Jesus here today is not here to to help people who've kind of got it together to have a better marriage or to run their business in 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 a more honoring fashion or to make a little bit more money. Jesus Christ is here today to save those who are destitute. Men that are blind, men that are deaf, men that are mute, men that cannot praise God, men that have no standing before Him. Men and women and children who come to a recognition that they are outcast and without Christ in this morning, blind. Spiritually blind. That the, the emphasis of this passage, I am convinced, um, is to, to convey to us the spiritual nature of mankind in general. Uh, mankind universal is that we are all born with an inability to see. 
And this is clear when you read the book of Mark. This is clear when you read the book of Isaiah. This is clear when you listen to the Apostle Paul. This is clear in Jesus' teaching. It was clear in the previous passage in 8, 16, and 17 when he says, Do you not have eyes to see? Men, are you blind? And the, it was a rhetorical question. Um, they, they were. Throughout the prophets, blindness is a metaphor for spiritual darkness and spiritual um, self-deception and spiritual inability. John chapter 9, you read another account of Jesus giving sight to a blind man. Jesus encounters the Pharisees. The, the, the entire account is almost taken up in the entire chapter of John chapter number 9. Jesus encounters the Pharisees in verse number 35, and you read this. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe on him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking to you. It's me, you know, like I'm, I'm the guy. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the Son of God. Um, and they just wouldn't see it. They wouldn't see it. He says, You have both seen him, and it is, you who, it is he who is talking to you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. Um, this is the blind man. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have came into the, I come into the world, that those who do not see me, or see, may see, and those who may see may be made blind. And of course, he's talking about those who believe they see, the righteous Pharisees who thought that they see, or thought that they could see, but they were spiritually deceived. Um, and that's what he said. He said, for judgment I've come into the world. Why? So that those who don't see may see, and those who see may be made blind. And then some of the, some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. And those that are blind, um, who, are, who, are, um, who are solidified in their blindness, is what he's teaching, are those who look at themselves and say, We have no sin. You deceive yourselves and you make God a liar, is what John says in 1 John as well. The spiritual blindness is a theme all throughout Scripture's if you were to go to the book of John in chapter number 1, you would read of Jesus Christ being the light, the true light that lights every man who comes into the world. And this is the culmination of it in verse number 4. And Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and that man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light but it was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light which gives light to every man that comes into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came into his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. Can you imagine that? That as the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. That men are so dark that the light stands right before them. Can you imagine this morning? Uh, can you imagine sleeping throughout the night in darkness and a light coming on immediately? It should trigger something almost immediately. And most of us, it'll wake us up in a moment. A, a baby, a child, the most natural of men. Can you imagine the, the picture that is being painted there? That the light, the, 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 the brightest light in all the world comes in human form and he lives and dwells among men. And there are men who stand before him and, and, and they don't see it. They can't see it. They're unable to see it. You know, they, they held him. They touched him. They, they laid him to rest. They, they crucified him. They put a spear through him. They, they murdered the light. This is what we're talking about when we talk about spiritual darkness. We talk about spiritual inability and total deception. 
We talk about someone who 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 is born into the world, myself included, all of us universally who are born um, with this nature corrupted as the result of consequences of Adam's sin. Sin enters into the world and death by sin. And thus we're all born um, like this to where God Himself is ever before us in creation and in conscience. And we suppress the light. Why? John tells us in John chapter 3 and verse number 19, after that great passage of, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In verse number 19, it says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Romans chapter 1 tells us, in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 18, these words. This is the ultimate conclusion of mankind left to himself. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. The light is of some sense is in them as God's law is even written upon their conscience as, as they have a moral um, accountability within them as they know right from wrong because they're created in the image of God. What may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. They look inside themselves, they look outside themselves, they look at, the, at their conscience and they look at creation. And what do they do? It says they're without excuse, but what do they do? They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. John, uh, why do they do that? Because they love darkness rather than light. This is what the Bible teaches us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 14 tells us this. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. For, he, for can he know them? Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? And the answer is no one. But we have the mind of Christ. The idea is that and the natural man born into the world in his fleshly estate is so consumed with himself and uh, with the gratification of the flesh that he loves darkness more than light um, that he does not, he will not, he cannot because he will not um, submit to the teaching of God's Word. I mean, it goes even further in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse number 3. Not only is it internal, not only is it external, but we also realize that the blindness of man is demonic or the result of demonic oppression. Not only is it inward suppression of the flesh, but it's also demonic suppression. Um, you read these words in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age is blinded. Who's that Satan? Who do not believe. Why? That not the light of the glorious, of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For that's why we do not, he says, that's why we do not preach ourselves, men. But Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. That the natural man does not receive nor understand. Why? Because the natural man naturally rejects God because he's consumed with himself, gratifying the flesh. And if that wasn't enough, the devil comes in and blinds our eyes. That the natural man, by virtue of that, naturally pushes away spiritual things and won't receive them because he cannot understand them. He doesn't want to understand them. Um, Ephesians chapter 4 um, gives us a little deeper picture in verse number 17. 
Paul writes these words, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. How, Paul? In the futility of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. That's the culmination. That's the result. That spiritual darkness consumes ourselves with ourselves. We suppress the truth. Why? Because we love the darkness rather than light. That wasn't enough. The devil blinds us as well from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, what does that do, Paul? Um, that alienates you from the life of God. Um, because of the ignorance that is in them, he says, because of the blindness of their hearts. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. He reminds them of a former day in which they were darkened in their inner man, which led to all sense of lewdness and, and ungodliness and sinfulness as they pursue the gratification of their own hearts and their own minds and the idols of their own heart. Uh, why? Because they love that more than they love God. The idea is that we come into this world not as truth seekers. Without clear perception, we don't even have faulty perception. We have no perception of spiritual things. We come into this world spiritually blind. We have no moral capacity to receive God's truth, at least in the way that it's intended. And if it wasn't enough, the God of this age um, solidifies that by veiling the truth of the gospel. Part of the depravity is spiritual blindness, so that we do not believe the truth because we cannot see the truth. We do not embrace the gospel because we cannot see the beauty of the gospel. We do not follow Christ by nature because we cannot see the light that has come into the world. And this is a great place to stop and say, um, well, we'll do that in just a moment. Um, so what happens? That's, in a sense, what happens in the passage? Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought to him a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And Jesus does something kind of unusual here. He takes a blind man, again, a man who can't see, a man who is in total darkness, a man who is an outcast, a man who cannot carry on life by himself. Um, why? Because he can't engage in community, he can't work with his hands, he can't have a home, he can't have a family. Um, so there's people who just um, are just shattered and want this man to be healed um, we, we wonder exactly why they bring him to Jesus. We don't know if it's uh, for the virtue of uh, the gospel um, or simply he's a, a miracle worker. It could just be kind of uh, motivated by health, wealth, and prosperity. Um, we don't know the motivation of these men, but we thank God for them. It doesn't matter why they bring him. We're just thankful that they brought him, right? Because it leads to his, his healing. What does Jesus do? He does something kind of uncommon he, or something that we wouldn't expect. He removes them from the crowd. You know, we can read from other passages that crowds are gathering together, um, throngs of people. Um, and Jesus, you would think, you know, according to most books and, and, uh, and media today and uh, kind of the latest, greatest tactics, like it would have been great if Jesus would have just like did it there, right? Like a revival surely would have happened um, if Jesus would have just healed them right there in front of everybody. Um, but Jesus doesn't. I mean, he does something kind of unusual. He does the same thing that he did a couple of accounts ago with the deaf woman, and he takes her out privately. And um, he takes this man out privately, um, as he did the deaf man, and leads him out of the town. And some could ask why. Um, some people believe it's because in Matthew chapter 11, which would have been prior to this account, actually Jesus gives a woe or a curse upon Bethsaida. 
Um, it's, a, it's almost a parallel passage, to be honest with you. In Matthew chapter 11, you don't need to turn there, um, but you read these words, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in Tyre and Sidon um, would have been done, they, they, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable in Tyre and Sidon than it will be um, on the day of judgment than for you. And the idea was this, that God had done so many miracles in the area of Bethsaida um, that He gives them over to themselves. It's kind of like what we just read with Romans. Um, they suppress the truth of God. They see the light. They reject the light. Um, why? Because they love darkness rather than light. So what does God do? He gives them over to themselves and gives them the desires of their heart. Um, so it very well could be that He would no longer do great miracles in Bethsaida. Um, because they would not receive him. Thus he goes out. It could also simply be that Jesus is tender and he desires for these people to know something. And it could have very well just been that a blind man who's healed in the midst of a great throng or a crowd or a deaf man that's healed in the midst of a great throng or a crowd would have been startled by all that he had seen and all that he had heard. It could just be simply natural that Jesus is loving this man um, by taking him out to a crowd so that when he does see, or he can actually have a conversation with him or he can hear, it could have just been somewhat natural. We don't, we don't really know. Um, but what does he do? He leads him outside the town. Um, and followed by, he spits on his eyes and puts his hands on him, and he asks him if he had seen anything. So um, he lays hands on him and he spits on him. This is like lovely, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, if, uh, if it doesn't get unusual, um, if it's not unusual by now, it's even more unusual. Uh, very similar to what he did with the deaf woman, though, or the deaf man, where he spit and he touched the tongue. He identifies, in some sense, by the laying on of hands. What's the significance of that? Um, I honestly don't know. Um, some conclude that the issue is, is that um, among pagans and among Gentiles, that there was some healing properties within the saliva. Um, we're not 100% sure. This is what we know. This is what he did. Um, he spits on the guy. He lays hands on him. He identifies with this man. Much in the Old Testament, the, lay, the, the procedure of laying on hands is an identification of, of one person with another. Whether it's um, the, the laying on of hands of priests to ordain them to a sacred office, or it was the laying on of hands upon a beast for a sacrifice, it was identification with that something. And what you see here is just the tenderness of Christ condescending as a man and identifying with this uh, man's suffering as he lays hands upon him and shares um, his human nature with him in some sense. Followed by a question. He asked him if he saw anything. And we're going to get to this in just a moment. This is one of the most intriguing passages that I've read um, because this is unique. You know, as you come to the book of Mark, and you come to many passages, God just continues to intrigue us, I hope. What you see here is a uniqueness about this miracle. You say, what's the uniqueness? It's a staged miracle. It's, a, it's this miracle that happens in stages. Nowhere else in any of the miracles that we can tell um, does Jesus Christ um, ever progressively heal a person. It's always instant. Here, there is a progressiveness to His miracle. Um, here, He doesn't heal them the first time, Right? And some scholars, some, some secularists, some other people have argued why, why couldn't Jesus you know, heal him the first time. Some have argued that Luke and Matthew um, leave this one out for that reason. This is unique to Mark. Why? Because Matthew and Luke didn't want, to, didn't want to convey the idea that Jesus was unable, therefore they left it out. And that's all speculation. I don't believe that for a moment. Um, but Mark includes a miracle that is unique to him, just like the deaf, the deaf man just a few weeks ago. Um, and the unique, one of the unique um, aspects of this is that he heals him in stages and he asks him, 
Um, do you see anything? Nowhere else in the miracles does he ask a deaf man, can you hear? Right? Um, he doesn't ask a dead man, are you breathing now? You know, It wasn't as if he said, Lazarus, come forth, and I have to check and see um, if he's actually breathing. Lazarus, are you there? Do I need to uh, go a second round or a third round or a fourth round? Um, so you see a uniqueness in this passage in that way. Jesus asks, can you see? Can you see? And I think there's a spiritual dimension to this, and we'll get more into it in just a few moments. Um, but what did he just ask his disciples in the previous passage? Men, can you, do you not see? Can you not hear? You know, that there's a spiritual dimension that this is um, not only for the blind man, I believe, but this is also for the disciples and this is also for us. And what he's going to show is, a, is, is a kind of symbolic and metaphorical of the Christian life that oftentimes uh, the, the salvation is progressive and sanctification is progressive and often happens in stages. And we'll see that in just a moment. Um, that's what you see, that the, 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 um, the initial touch does something, but it doesn't complete the action. Um, he, said, he looked up, the man looked up in verse 24 and he said, I see men like trees walking. And then he puts his hands on him again and, and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everything clearly. What happens? Um, Jesus Christ touches this man. He spits on this man. He identifies with this man. He lays hands on this man. And he asks the man, do you see? And what does the man say? He says, yes, I see. But I don't see clearly. I see men, as it were, blurred objects walking as they were like men Trees walking. Um, so Jesus lays hands on him once again. And this man's sight is completely restored. And what do we read after that? Then he sent him away. Uh, he saw everything clearly. And the idea there, that there's, a, there's a specific word that is used there. That it's, it's, it's a perfect sight. That that which he did not see clearly before, he now sees with perfection. And then he sent him away into the house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. And we've talked about that before, and we'll talk about that again in just a moment. Um, but when you go to verse number 27, Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to him, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter. Um, and it said to him, you are the Christ. And then he strictly warns them that they should tell no one about him. Jesus in this portion of Scripture, following the immediate, um, is going to illustrate that His disciples are blind. Um, that, that those that are blind and those that are not. Um, Jesus is going to discriminate between those that are blind and those that are not. With what? With a question. What was the question? Who do men say that I am? Now the question would be, why does He ask that question? It could be similar to the question of, do you see anything? Doesn't Jesus know? Of course Jesus knows. So why does He ask Him? Um, who do men say that I am? Does Jesus really care what people think about him? Does he really care what the Pharisees think? Does he really care or does he not know? And I don't think that the issue there is that Jesus doesn't know. I think the issue there is ministering to the disciples. He's discriminating within the disciples' hearts whether they are or whether they're not um, blind. Who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say that you're Jeremiah. Some say that you're one of the prophets. Okay, I understand that. And then he points the question again, who do you say that I am? And the sermon changes. The sermon changes from who do they say that I am to who do you say that I am? You know, Jay Adams says that a sermon is never a sermon until you get to the you of the sermon. <laughs> you know, that, that, that we can spend all day long preaching about them and they and we and us. But Jesus quickly turns the sermon to them. Who do you say that I am? It's preparatory. He's leading them to, uh, to examine their own hearts and to ask them and examine themselves 
as to whether or not they believe um, who Jesus is. Um, Jesus is getting to the you of the sermon. What does Peter say? He says, you're the Christ. You are the Christ. Well said. If you were to go to Matthew's gospel, you would read a much deeper and in-depth account that we may get into in the coming weeks um, that Mark doesn't include. But what do you see? You see in the book of Matthew, in chapter number 16, this great statement, but you see it immediately followed, um, and even in this passage in some sense, by Jesus um, conveying to the disciples that his death is coming. You know what Peter does after that? Peter says, no, Lord, you're crazy. And that's me paraphrasing. But that's pretty much what happens. Jesus gives an account of where He must go and He must suffer upon the cross within the next year. And that would be the culmination of His work. And Peter, immediately following this great, um, this great acclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he follows it um, with a foolish word where he rebukes and reprimands Christ for His words. And what do you see? You see Peter who can see. And you see the disciples who can see something, but they don't see clearly. They don't see everything. They see, as it were, like men walking as trees. They understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, but their spiritual perception isn't quite as clear as um, some of us think that it ought to be. Or some of us think that it would, they would like for it to be. Even to the point to where sometimes you're wondering as you go throughout the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels whether or not these men are saved at all. Right? Sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm battling and I have some questions from you guys and you're like, when do you think they came to faith? I'm like, I don't know. It seems like in this passage they did, but the next one it seems like they didn't. You know, it seems like they had eyes to see here, but they didn't have eyes to see there. It seems like they were heard here and they understood in the previous passage as Jesus walked them through. Uh, but in the next passage, it's like they didn't get it at all. You know, like isn't that the Christian life? Isn't that it at all? Or isn't that it kind of all together? That often days, there's many of you, many of us, um, as we look around and even examine our own hearts and souls, um, that Jesus is so patient with us because many of us see, but we don't see quite, quite clearly. And what you see here is the sovereignty of God um, in graciousness opening the eyes of the blind man, that would be first and, and foremost. That in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, um, that passage that we read earlier of the God of the age blinding the eyes of those that um, do not believe, the very next verse you read this, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But this, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of maybe maybe of God and not of us. And what you see is a spiritual truth illustrated in Mark chapter number 8 that is illustrated each and every day following this as Jesus Christ looks into and peers into the heart of men and He, he, he shines forth as a light into a lost and a dying soul. And we have to come to the spiritual truth and from this passage, that yes, men are dark, and yes, men are deceived, and yes, men are in their darkness, and yes, men are blind, and that if anyone will come out of it, it will be according to the sovereign grace of God. That that is what Jesus desires to teach us in this passage. That's why we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you're here today and you can say, you know, that I'm a Christian, then you have to say, 
that I'm a Christian not because of my intellect, not because of my emotion, not because of my will, not because of my tradition, not because I'm good enough, not because I'm a church member, not because I was baptized, not because I was faithful to Sunday school, not because I attended church in the midst of a pandemic when the rest of them were abandoning it, you know, not because of this accolade or that accolade or anything that I came to of my own accord, but simply because God one day in my heart took a blind, dead sinner and shined the glorious gospel in it. That's it. That's it. The blind man. He, he, he's brought and he's, 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 he's unable. He's, he, he understands as he's lived with his malady maybe his whole life or sometime thereafter that if anything is going to happen, it's not going to happen in and of himself. No doubt he's been to doctors. No doubt he's tried pagan rituals. No doubt he's um, tried spiritual things. And these men understand that, that, that they come to the end of themselves and that if anything's going to happen, it's going to be this man. And you have to come to that realization as well. As Charles Wesley wrote in one of his hymns, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's light. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and, and followed thee. The first thing that we learn in this passage of Scripture, that is, if any man will live, it will be because God um, extends sovereign grace to them. Why? Because darkened men um, don't come. Blind men don't see in and of themselves. You know? And there is a sense in which light is not the necessity, right? Why? Because light was ever before them. Light was ever before them and they would not see it. It is not that they need more light and more light and more light. You know, sometimes we, we approach the gospel like that. We think that if we give more light and more light and more light and more intellect and more intellect and more intellect and we, and we argue apologetically, um, we, argue, we defend the faith, um, and we think that if we can convince them of this, uh, of the creation account, if we can talk to them about science, if we can take them to this place or that place, or we can argue this point or that point, that it's somehow it's going to persuade them. You know? Um, and then we look at the Jews. And we understand that if they could not be persuaded in and of themselves, then who can? Who else had the oracles? Who else had the fathers? Who else had the scriptures? Who else had the prophets? Who else had Moses? Who else had this? Who else had that? Um, and at the end of the day, woe to you, Bethsaida. That if any man will come, it will be of the grace of God who peers into the, um, the heart of a man and gives him the ability, gives him eyes to see and ears to hear and a new heart to feel. That this miracle communicates to us truth, spiritual blindness in a unique way. That if blind men will see, it will be because they come to Jesus. Now again, to draw attention to something that is quite significant, you know, is that um, is the fact that we have um, this idea of our Lord and Savior healing men in a different way than He heals them here. I believe He deals with this blind man as He did in order to give them and us a picture of ourselves. He adopts this technique in the case before us in order to enable us to see and the disciples and also to see ourselves. That at this point, the sermon turns to you. You know, I've been living with this thing all week long. <laughs> you know, uh, struggling through it as God preached it to me. And now it's time for it to come to you. 
that it's more than just about the disciples, that it's also about you, right? Um, do you understand? Do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? Do you understand the position? Do you understand the position of this man? It's difficult to describe the man, isn't it? You can't say that the man isn't blind or that the man is blind, right? You cannot say that he's blind any longer, but you, can't say that, uh, you cannot say that he is still blind because he does see. And yet you hesitate to say that he can see because he sees men as trees walking. What then? Is he blind or is he not blind? You feel that you have to say one and the same and that it could be um, both. I'm concerned that there's many Christians out there like that today who are um, having difficulty within their lives, wondering one day whether they're a Christian and wondering one day whether they're the next that they are at all. Um, why? Because they don't have the clarity. Sometimes when they've been in a service or they've been here or they've been there, they'll say, yes, I'm a Christian, I believe that. And then something happens the next day and they say, no. Surely I'm not a Christian because I thought this and I believed that. If I were a Christian, I couldn't have done such things or have thought such thoughts. I wouldn't want to do certain things that I did if I, I was. So they're troubled about themselves. Maybe you're troubled about yourselves. And you're like a blind man that sees, but he can't see. You see men walking as trees. And thus you have anxiety and you have lack of assurance and you're depressed today. Um, because you are a man who sees, but he doesn't see. He's blinded, he's not blind. You know, I'm, I'm legally blind, I know. <laughs> I have contacts in, I wear glasses. I don't know what my prescription is, but it's blind. You know, um, And I can say, honestly, I take my contacts out, I can see, but I can't see. I couldn't tell who you were today if that's the case. It would create anxiety in my heart, especially if I got behind a wheel and went down the road because I know the nature of it. I know the danger that comes with that. And many Christians today are living as if they can see, but they can't see. There's a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of depression and there's a lot of toil and there's a lack of assurance and there's a lot of turmoil in your hearts and in your souls today. Why? Um, because you seemingly you have come to Jesus, but you've not come all the way. So what is it then that these people can see? Do they see? They see something, but what is it? They don't know. I don't know what it is. Yes, I do see men, but there's something wrong with the men that I see. They're, they're, I see them differently. I don't see them clearly. Very often they're clear that there is something wrong, but they don't know what it is, and maybe that's you today. Maybe today you see, but you don't see, and you know something's wrong, but you don't know what it is that's wrong. Christ has come, and He's taken you by the hand, but you've not gone all the way, as it were. If we can use the parable in that metaphorical sense. That you are kind of there, but you're not there. You're here today, but you're not here. Your heart is engaged, yet it's not engaged. You know, Christ is leading you, but you've not came. That's what we see in this man. So what do we do then? You say, that's me, and I don't know what to do. What do you do? You do what the same man did, right? But what's the cure? What's the right way, you may ask? If I'm this person, and I'm there, but I'm not there, and, and, and there's clarity, yeah, there's not, there, there, I see more than what I, I did see, but I don't see enough to say that... Um, that Jesus is something. He is a Savior, but He's... I, I just don't know. I don't know about His death. I don't know about His resurrection. I'm like Peter, you know, um, who saw but he didn't see, who, who thought but he didn't think. I'm confused. I think there's a lot of Christians out there today just simply confused. 
who think they're Christians and they may not be, who are Christians, um, but they don't think they are. And they're in that, that middle ground. So what do you do? It's simple. You do what this man did. He was honest. He was honest. The cure is to be honest and to answer our Lord's question truthfully and faithfully and honestly. That's the whole secret of the matter. He turned to this man and he said, do you see? And what did the man say? Honestly. He said, I do see. But I see men walking as trees. What saved this man? Of course, Christ saved this man. But what, but what was required of this man? This man was required to examine himself and say honestly. Like, where am I at? What do I see? The whole purpose of the, the passage in the sermon, I think, is that. Is to ask, what do you see? And to be honest with yourself and to be honest with God, what today do you see? Do you see it all? And if you do, what do you see? Right? Do you see clearly or do you see vaguely? Are you happy? Are you depressed? Are you anxious? Are you honest with God about it? Have you confessed it before Him? Do you really see? We either do or we don't. And it does nobody any good or service if you're here today and you're pretending to be a Christian when you're not or you're worried about not being a Christian and you continue to pretend that everything's okay. That you'll carry on in the anxiety and, the, and ultimately the depression um, as you carry on in self-deception because there is a sense of blindness upon your heart and you need Jesus to remove that. I think that that is so true of most Christians today. You, know, you gather together in a service in a lot of places and I've been you know, kind of fallen into this idea as well at many times because you want to see people saved, right? You bring people up and you, you, know, you, you lead them in a prayer and you do this and you do that and you walk them through and you ask them, do you see? And what do most Christians, what, what do they say? They say what they think that they're supposed to say. Yes, I see. I see. But is that honest? Do you really and truly see? Or do we just kind of pander through a certain, you know, three steps to be saved and people walk away um, think, seeing something more than what they did see, but they don't actually see um, clearly. But that's a pitfall, right? There's a couple pitfalls to fall in. Um, above everything else, avoid making a premature claim that your blindness is cured. You say, what do I do? Um, if, you're blind, if you don't see today, be honest with yourself and be honest with God you don't see. You know, don't make a premature claim that you see when you don't see. It must have been a great temptation to do that for this man. This man today, according to most people, he would have said, yes, Lord, I see. I see. I see. What a temptation it must have been for him to take that confession and take it to the world. I can see when he couldn't see clearly. The man, in a sense, could see, but it was incomplete and perfect. And he was just honest with the Lord. I would encourage you today to just be honest with the Lord. And then... There are many people today that are blind that don't know they're blind and they think they can see. There are many that can see and you say, is that, is that true? Yes, it's, it's true. There's many today that are blind but they can see by association. Ask a blind man sometime what the color of the sky is. You know what he'll tell you? He'll tell you it's blue even though he's never seen it before. I almost guarantee he'll get it right every time. Ask him what color the grass is and he'll get it. Why? Because he's lived with people his whole life who have told him that the grass is green. So he learns about the world by association. There are many Christians who live Christianity by association. You ask them what the doctrine of the Trinity is and they can give you a confessional points. 
You talk to them about what the gospel is faithfully, and they'll tell you what their mother and father or what the pastor says. They'll recount it. They'll take you to a statement of faith. You'll ask them what the doctrine of sanctification is, the doctrine of justification. They'll ask you. You'll ask them, and they'll get all the answers right. You'll ask them what the, the confession or what the catechism says. You know, what is the chief end of man? And they'll tell you that it's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. They'll tell you what they know. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they know it intimately. John Newton, that great uh, penman of um, the, 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 the banner of Christian songs, Amazing Grace, right? What does he write? Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. To save a wretch like me, I once was lost and now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. He writes these words in a letter. He says, a blind man is ingenious and inquisitive. A blind man, if ingenious and inquisitive, may learn to talk about the light, the sun, or the rainbow in terms borrowed from those who have seen, who have seen them. But it is impossible that he can have a just idea of either. And whatever hearsay knowledge he may have acquired, he can hardly talk upon much upon these subjects without betraying his real ignorance. That just as a blind man can learn about the world by association, it does not mean that he has sight. And just because he answers the questions appropriately and even answers them correctly does not mean that he understands in the truest sense what those things truly are. What is the color blue? Ask him. You know it's blue, but ask him. Go further. Go deeper. What is the color blue? What does that mean? What does it look like? Can you paint that picture? Can you draw it out for me? And the blind man, um, due to his malady, his disease, will know little of it. Ask a Christian. Ask yourself that today. Not what is the Trinity, not who is Christ, um, not what Scriptures can you quote, and not what does the Catechism say, but the beauty of it. Can you tell me of the beauty of Christ? You know? Not can you um, recount and account for the fact that He is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, not pulling Old Testament Scriptures, but have you seen Him? Can you tell me of His, not, not, not of passages that, that, that quote or allude to His holiness, have you sat before Him? Have you sat before His Word? Have you communed with Him in prayer and come to the end of yourself as you sit as Isaiah did um, in Isaiah chapter 6 when he sees Christ high and holy and lifted up in the seraphim before Him and He falls flat upon His face? Can you say as John did, in Revelation chapter 1, as he falls like a dead man, can you tell me of the beauty of Christ? Can you tell me of the holiness of Christ? Have you experienced it? Not have you heard it. Not do you know it. Not can you answer the questions appropriately. Not, not are you borrowing from other Christians their experience, but today are you blind and will you be honest with yourself? Most Christians today will not be honest with themselves. Why? Because they don't want to be, um, they, they don't want to feel like an outcast. You are an outcast. That's the point. We all are. Every single one of us. You're not deceiving us and you're not deceiving God. Be honest this morning with ourselves. And be honest with God. Confess to Him. Go to Him. Run to Him. Why? Because you need to be born again. That's all of our need. It did this man no good. Can you imagine that? You know, somebody coming to him and saying, there's a man who can heal you. You need to go. And he's, you know, and he's lived his entire life blind and everybody knows it. And he says, no, I'm good. You know? I'm good. I'm not blind. Like I see. Why? Because he felt around his house. He does fine just getting along. 
right? Blind men today, they can get around their house. There's so many amenities. There's so many commodities that will allow them to, 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 to just get around and get away and get, get into the world, you know, and to be able to get somewhat prosper, you know, so they can live alone by themselves and function in their house and they can walk through without bumping into anything. Why? Because it's always what they've done. And that's what most Christians do today, you know? There's so many Christians out there today that are blind and they can't clearly see, um, but they've, they've learned to get along, they learn just to, 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 to move around, not to bump into anything. They know what conversations to bring up and they know what not to. They know what things to do and they know what things not to do. They know what's right and what's appropriate and what's not. And they know that if they bump it, if, if they go down this route, they're going to rub against somebody, against the pastor, against this person, so they stay away from it. They learn to get along. And you preach a sermon like this and, and, you, know, and you try to reach out to, to, to most of the community who are quote-unquote saved and they get offended. You know? Oh, because I'm fine. Everybody's saved. Evangelism is, is unnecessary in Northeast Tennessee. You know? Why? Because everybody's good. They're getting along. We've learned how to do that. You know? God, would, would to God that some people would just be honest with themselves. You know? Well, what will people think? What will, they, you know, what will they think about me if I, I come to them and I tell them I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a Christian? I don't know that I'm a Christian. You know what we'll think? We'll think you're just exactly like us. You know? <laughs> who once was blind, but now we see. And if not by the grace of God, um, we would all um, have been the same. Joel Beakey in a sermon um, once is quoted saying these words, you know, when I was 16, God revealed Christ to my soul. So what is salvation? What is regeneration? It's a mysterious, miraculous, marvelous, sovereign work of God through His Spirit that lifts the scales from our eyes that we may see Christ as we've never seen Him before. Today, it's not a question of didactic ability and what you know and what you do. It's like, have you seen Christ? And have you seen Him in a way that you've never seen Him before? That's the first pitfall. The second pitfall is the, is the exact opposite of the first. The temptation of the first is to run, to proclaim that you can see before you can see clearly. But the second temptation is to feel absolutely hopeless and to say, there's no more point in going on. You put spittle on my eyes and... Or you put spit, you spit my eyes and you've touched me. In a sense, I see. But I just see men as trees. You know? And you become hopeless. Because you think you'll never see. You know? You ever been there? You ever been there apart from God or alone by yourself? Or in a sea of people. But never been more alone. You're trapped in the prison of your own mind. And you wonder where God's at. And you think as David did or as many others throughout the, um, throughout the ages, throughout history, you know. And you wonder where He's at and you wonder if He'll ever come. You wonder if He'll ever save you. You wonder if He'll ever, if He'll keep His promise some days, you know, as you're trapped there all alone. So some Christians can get hopeless and anxious and depressed and they can lose all hope and they can be content with never seeing we're never seen clearly. So what then? I beg you today to be honest with God. That's what I beg. Why? Because as the Scripture tells us um, in Matthew chapter 11, or 16, right? What was the issue? Um, thou art the Christ, the Son of... Who do men say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, you're right, Peter. The flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. Right? I beg you to be honest. And I beg you to 
Be honest with yourself and to be honest with God and whether you can see or not. You say, well, what do I do? You submit yourself to Him. You submit yourself to Him to not be content with being in that middle ground. You go to the Scriptures and you submit to what the Word says. Right? He didn't, this man didn't object to further treatment. You know, many Christians today, you, you kind of bring up something that they need and they, they scoff. Oh, you know, uh, you think you're better than I am. No. No, we're all just sinners need saved by grace. This man didn't object to further treat. He was honest with God. And when Jesus Christ came, what happened? Um, he said, you want to give me more? <laughs> I'll take more. He rejoiced in it. And I believe that if our Lord had not taken the further step, um, he, probably, he may have asked him to do so. And you can do the same. You can come to the Word of God today. You can stop asking questions. And you can start with the promises in the right way. And you can tell God, you can say to God, you can come to God and say, I want the truth, whatever it costs. Bind yourself to that. Submit yourself to that. Come in utter submission to that like a little child and plead with Him to give you clear sight. If you're that person today who is in the middle ground and you're losing hope, don't lose hope. Don't give up. Believe the Scriptures. You know about Him enough. You're there. You're like Peter. Thou art the Son, uh, the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. Um, you, you've come. You've led me this far. Therefore, God, lead me farther. Come honestly. What do you see this morning? Do you see clearly? Or do you see men walking as trees? Do you know Christ this morning? Or do you truly know Him? Listen, He is Matthew chapter. I love Matthew chapter 11. Um, that passage that we read earlier, woe unto you, Chorazin, woe unto you, Bethsaida. Um, on the foothills of that, he come off of that hill in that valley. And you know what Jesus says in verse 25 immediately after? Jesus turns and he looks to his disciples. He says, I thank you, Father. He looks to his Lord. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it has seemed good in your sight. All things you've delivered to me by my Father. Um, and in the verse number 28 is that premier verse. Come unto me, all you that are, are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. And for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That if you're there this morning and you're blind, Jesus promises to take you by the hand. You know, and if you're there today and, 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 and you see clearly, then you know what you need to do? You need to bring somebody else along. You know, this, this passage of Scripture and passages like this all throughout the, the Gospels especially, we find over and over and over again um, people bringing others to Christ. Why? Because they see and they are burdened that others don't. And when you do faithfully bring somebody else to Christ... Don't think that it's in a method and don't think that it's in means. You know, one of the reasons I think that God did this the way that He did, Jesus did this the way that He did, I mean, simply to teach us that Christ saves, not us. There's not a method. He, he, he uses different methods and means with each miracle. You know, He uses spittle on one. He uses a word on another. He uses touch on another. Can you imagine what happened in the um, hearts of those people who brought Him that day? What did they beg Him to do? They begged Him to do what? Touch Him. What did Jesus do? Initially, he touched him, but it didn't heal him, right? Jesus touches him initially, and there's no miracle. Did you notice that? He takes him by the hand, and he leads him a long way outside the village to a solitary place. That there wasn't any miraculous thing, a spiritual thing about the touch of Jesus. 
No doubt that some looked at, at the, the, the woman uh, who touched the trim of, of his garment and was healed and thought, if I could just touch the trim of his garment. And then another one comes and touches the trim of his garment and nothing happens. He touches one this way and he touches and the other one comes seeking that there's something in the method and there's not. You know, one prays a prayer and one seeks the Lord. I love to hear um, testimonies from some of you guys who said, you know, I was sitting in a service and the gospel wasn't even preached and God just gave me eyes to see. And like there was a baby being born, you know. Some babies are born here and some babies are born there and some babies are born in a taxi cab and some are delivered at home and some this way and some that way. Some have a harder time than others and some just come out like, you know, as, 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 as easy as day. You know, that, but, but, but the point is that Jesus Christ saves. And that when you bring somebody to Christ, you just bring them and Christ takes them and He leads them by the hand. And He this morning is standing there with arms wide open. Yes, holy. Yes, righteous. Yes, repudiating sin. But at the same time, He comes as Matthew says in chapter number 11, gentle and lowly and ready to forgive. That He is there this morning ready to receive all that will come to Him. This blind man didn't even come of his own accord. When he met Christ, Christ leads him along the way. What did he do? He submitted to Christ and he was honest with Him. I'm begging you this morning, be honest. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. And be honest with those that are around you. Do you see clearly? Do you see men walking as trees? Do you see it all? Because if you don't, I beg you this morning, I bring you to Christ that He may take you by the hand and give you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart, um, and a heart to feel. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then God will give you sight, and you will finally, I love it, I love Jesus, I love the way that he operates. I love what he does. I'm just enamored by his love for us. You know, like so unlovable on most days. Maybe that's some of you this morning. Some of you who have come who said, I'm unsavable. Jesus couldn't save me. You don't understand my sin. You don't understand my nature. You don't understand this. Jesus wouldn't come within 10 feet of me if he understood what was in my heart. One thing I learned, if nothing else, from the Gospels is that your sin and your weakness and your infirmity does not deter Christ. If anything, it implores Him to come to you. Do you see that? Like other passages of Scripture in the Old Testament, you just get this view of God's holiness. You know, in the, in the, in the New Testament, in many places, you just get this idea of His different character and His nature all throughout the Gospels. He looks at the people and He says, He has compassion upon the people. Yes, He's holy. Yes, He's righteous. Yes, He will rain down sin upon those who will not come to Him. But His... Um, his, his, his nature, His tenor is different for those who will. And I beg you and I encourage you and I tell you this morning that if you will come to Him, He will in no wise refuse you, nor will He in no wise cast you out. That when Jesus looks upon the world, um, He is moved with compassion. And when He sees your sin and your weakness this morning, your infirmities, your anxiety, your depression, um, He is moved in His bowels. That's what the word means. That if he was here today in human form and he looked out upon this crowd, he would look and he would be moved with compassion. Why? Because of all of the infirmity and all of the weakness and all of the sin, it would actually move him towards you to help and to aid and hold his hand out. Therefore, I beg you this morning to take the hand of Jesus.
You say, I've tried, prayed the prayer and it's done nothing. Then let him lead you a little while longer. Let him take you outside the camp. You say, I see and I don't see clearly. Then stay with him. Stay with him another day. Stay with him another week. If you know that he's the son of God, stay there. Submit to him. Go to his word. He will carry it out and he will finish the work. And uh, one day we long for that great day in which we will finally be able to see fully and clearly um, as we meet Him in glory. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the glory of Your grace. God, we thank You for another precious morning. God, that we can rejoice in You and rejoice in Your Word. Father, You are so patient and long-suffering and kind to us. God, it's hard to think about You sometimes in Your Son as being gentle and lowly. We understand that there's coming a day when the sword will be coming out of the mouth of Christ and He'll lay to rest all the folly and the foolishness and the evil and the wickedness of men. But at the same time, Your Son just portrays to us so, so vividly just the patience and the long-suffering and the gentleness and the lowliness and the accessibility of Christ. That He stands this morning to... Um, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and children alike with his hand outstretched, saying, Come unto me. We are so weary, and we are so heavy laden, and we are so anxious, Father. And we've tried so many things, and we're working, and we've, we've learned to get along, and a number of other things. Father, we've learned to live without you. And I pray today that you would just enlighten our hearts, give us eyes to see that there is no life without you, that we are as blind men bumping into walls today just a little less than yesterday thinking we've accomplished something of any merit. Father, give us eyes to see our families. God, give us eyes to see our own hearts. Give us eyes to see the world. Give us eyes to look into our nation, Father, and see just the utter depravity and what to do next. Father, give us spiritual discernment and wisdom according to your word and how to look and how to, how to carry on and how to act. What is honoring to you, Father? Give us eyes to see, to look into the world, to those that um, don't have Christ, Father, that we may preach and declare to them the truth of God's word, that they are blind. Um, not to, to elevate ourselves above them, Father, or to say, look at us, but Father, because we've tasted grace and <laughs> we know that that's the only hope. May we preach a gospel, Father, that is the power of God unto salvation um, to give and to bring um, dead men to life that they may see um, their own selves and see the world, Father, as it truly is. Would you just help us this morning, if nothing else, Father, just to learn to be honest with you and to be honest with ourselves. That we do nobody any good, including ourselves, Father, just continue to deceive ourselves. We know that we are wicked men in need of help. May we see Jesus Christ as the God of the Jew as well as the Gentile. May we see Him sufficient for all of our need as the ultimate bread of life who's able to, to sustain, Father, each of us in the wilderness. Will we, Father, will you help us to see this morning that outside of Jesus Christ there is no life because He is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, will you help us to abandon ourselves and to cling to Christ today as our only hope to cure um, the maladies of our soul. Father, we lay before you today as deaf, mute, lame, leprous, demon-possessed, under the bondage of Satan men, ready to be saved. God, I pray that that's the case. And if we are, we're ready to bring men like that to Jesus without any expectation 
other than you will do with them, Father, as you sovereignly decree. And you will extend grace to those who come. So, Father, let them come. In Jesus' name, amen.